good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a pen and napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome back to the coaching staff, episode number 71 from Balmy, beautiful Omaha, Nebraska, where in the next 48 hours, the Fahrenheit temperature gauge may get above zero. Now, you folks are going to be hearing this on Friday. Uh, and by then, Tony and I maybe have thawed out by then. Tony, are you a, are you kind of a walking popsicle over there in eastern Iowa? We are. Uh, looking at something earlier and trying to think of what they put, how the coldest it's been since I don't remember how many years ago here as far as the wind chill and all that good stuff. Uh, but I have probably shoveled more snow in the past few days than I think I've shoveled in a long, long time. I think last Tuesday I went out there three times and my back still hasn't forgiven me. Are you a, uh, you must be a gradual shoveler. Like you, you go, you go in multiple shifts instead of just doing it all at once. Well, Rita had to go to work Tuesday. So we were up at five fifteen trying to get the driveway so she could get out of it. And then sitting there about noon, I was like, oh, she's going to be home here in a handful of hours. I should probably get it going again. So I went back out and did it. And then I went back in and on Twitter saw that our local meteorologist said that it was supposed to be uh, coming down the heaviest. It's going to come down all day at that time. So I had to go back out and do it a third time. So it was more of a stupidity thing than a gradual thing. <laughs> well, yeah, I uh, we uh, we had to do uh, – I was just going to do it all at once, and then we had the stuff that happened with the dog and yep. and had to dig out it. You know, literally, I was out there at two thirty in the morning, digging the car out, or digging our way out of the driveway and everything, uh, and then kind of went with the the big, kind of did the final clearing today after the wind had died down, the temperature wasn't as bad, and, and we weren't going anywhere anyway. So, um, you know, we were uh, so so we did we split it fifty fifty. I did half. Michael did half. Uh, earned his keep a little bit and so we we survived it we survived it so so uh, let's go with uh let's go with uniforms numbers here tony i got three of them um 71s here i've got two offensive linemen and a defensive lineman from three different eras one modern era one from our childhood and one from our fajers childhood oh boy I don't know if I know a 71 off the top of my head, to be honest with you. Um, seems like, there's, you know, like you said, there's one modern day one that should jump right out at me, and I am struggling to pick that one up. Offensive lineman from the Pacific Northwest. Offensive lineman, Pacific Northwest. We're probably talking Seahawks. Yes. Um, let's go with... Shoot. Offensive line Seahawks. Don't got it? Don't got it. Jason Peters. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. Seahawks, Eagles. Yep. 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 Okay. Uh, the one from our childhood, Washington Redskins dominant defensive end. Is that Dexter Manley? He was on the other end from Dexter Manley. Charles Mann. Charles Mann. There it is. One for two. Uh, the third one was not only famous as a uh, as a offensive lineman. I believe he was an offensive lineman. Let me double check that for sure. But he was also he, he became even more famous for his acting career after his career. Oh. Is it Alex Karras? Alex Karras, former Iowa Hawkeye. Oh, he was a defensive yeah. tackle. My bad. Uh, he was was played the dad in Webster, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yes, okay. he did. Uh, let's see here. Let's go down the uh, IMDb uh, of Alex Karras here. Uh, he was on Monday Night Football. Uh, he was in Porky's. He was in Against All Odds. Victor Victoria. Uh, jeez, he was on a lot. He was, right in, he was on an episode right of MASH. Uh, yep, he was the the TV dad of uh, Emmanuel Lewis on Webster. Very nice. His hey, I didn't know this. His real life wife was the fictional mother in the series, or played his wife in the series. 
Okay. Wow. I didn't know that one either. Huh. Well, hey, you learned something new about Alex Karras. History lesson of Alex Karras <laughs> that we didn't know we needed. Yeah, and I don't think anybody really needed it. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> now you know. It's kind of what's those NBC things uh, when we were in high school? The more you know, you need to know, isn't it? Yeah, then the you need to know, or the more you know, or something, yeah, something like that. Some, something like that. So, all right. Well, speaking of football players, Tony and I, um, we're gonna zig a little bit here this week, episode seventy-one. Uh, it was a momentous week in football uh, where we had three of the legends of the game, all interrelated, all intertwined with one another. Pete Carroll, Nick Saban, Bill Belichick all moved on or and or retired from coaching all within about, what, 48 hours or so, Tony? Yeah, it just seemed like I think Pete Carroll was the first domino. Yeah. And then the other two went rather quickly as well. Yeah. And there'd been some stuff swirling about Belichick for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Carroll, there was some things in the last few weeks. Saban, to me, I had never really. Now, you're the Alabama guy, Tony. Had you heard anything about Saban? I hadn't. You know, I thought two to four more years. Mm-hmm. You know, he is 72. Yeah. Uh, but I thought two to four more years and then. He kind of right off into the sunset because they, you know, the always two early polls that come out there, um, they and some of those were were going to be preseason number one. Yeah, yeah, and there's when you're that successful, there's no real good time. I mean, you're always going to sit there and go, well, what could have been, what should have been, you know, that type of thing. But uh, you know, one of the things that Tony and I uh, have done over the years is not only have we studied basketball coaches, but you know, you you've got to study people outside of the sport, your chosen sport. If you're a football coach listening to this, you should be listening to basketball coaches and, and baseball coaches and all the way around the, 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 the way. So uh, Tony and I thought it would be great to talk about these three football coaches, the three kings, if you will, or the three wise men or what, however you want to put it, uh, and, and just talk about the things that, and again, I know we're talking mainly to basketball coaches. What are some things that we can take away from each one of these three, whether you liked them or not? These three terrific, terrific football coaches who in many ways have been the, the three dominant personalities in football since about 2000 or so. Uh, if you really think about it, Saban and Carroll at the college level, Belichick at the pro level, uh, Carroll won a Super Bowl, then famously lost a Super Bowl to to Belichick and the Patriots. So, you know, uh, you know, who do you want to talk about first, Tony? Uh, uh, Saban, Carroll, or Belichick? Let's go Carroll first. Okay, all right. Uh, I've and, and for each one of these guys, I've got and and I've I've spent some time studying all three of them. Uh, now I've, I've, I've looked at one more than the other two, and I'll talk about that when, when it's, when it's right. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's, yeah, let's talk about Pete Carroll. I've got about six or seven bullet points on each one of them. Uh, go ahead and just let it rip Tony and, and let's roll from there. Yeah. You know, Pete Carroll, one of those guys who was always optimistic, Yeah, you know, uh, no matter what circumstances was always optimistic. I remember, you know, a handful of years ago. Seattle was in that rebuild mode. They had traded Russell Wilson. They had traded Bobby Wagner. Um, they had cut some guys and different things like that. But, you know, with his belief, you saw the Seahawks have a great season. But he was always, always optimistic. It was more of a, you know, you, you get to rather than you have to. And yeah. just always the glass was half full with him. The other thing that stood out about him as well is enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know if he ever had a bad day. Always excited to be there. Um, always built his guys up, um, and just did a fantastic job with that. Whether it was with the Seahawks or USC, or you know, I know he was a defensive coordinator in the NFL for a while too. Uh, but no matter what program, what what team he was associated with, was always optimistic and just had a a bounce in his step. You know, and then that was the other thing is the fact that you know. Uh, he got out there with his guys, you know, and I, I think that's one of the big things you take a look at. I know when you take a look at, at leaders of, of soldiers, you know, you have those who are away from the soldiers and, and different things like that are making the big decisions. And then you have those leaders who are in the foxhole with them that sleep in the, the, you know, outside with them and stuff like that. And the men 
really, really appreciate that. And then to me, that was Pete Carroll. He would get out there. He would throw the football around. He yep. would talk with them, you know, and different things like that. But he really, really uh, had what was best in mind for his players. And those were the handful of things for me that really, really stood out about him. And then, obviously, uh, he was on the cutting edge defensively. Because if you take a look with the Legion of Boom and the things they were doing to disrupt modern-day offenses and stuff like that, you know, he was on the cutting edge from a strategic standpoint, more so on on the defensive side of the ball than the offensive side, but just was also someone who really was a master of his craft as well. I I think one of the interesting things with all three of these guys – you know, the tie that binds all three of them together is they were all, and, and I want to say they, they were because I think Belichick's going to land somewhere. I think he wants to break Shula's record, and, and I think he's got a few more years left in him just because he's crazy, you know. but yeah. And I mean crazy in a positive way. Um, but they're all great defensive minds. And the old adage, offense wins games, defense wins championships. Well, these guys all won championships with great defenses at one point or another. Now, they all evolved as well, but I, I, I think you associate Belichick with that. I think you associate Saban with that, but a lot of times people forget that Pete Carroll was a terrific, terrific defensive football coach as well. Um, mm-hmm. I agree with everything you said there, Tony. Uh, positive, his enthusiasm. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I highly, highly recommend... Folks go out and pick up uh, his book, Win Forever. It was a really, really influential book on me when I was, uh, during my sabbatical, my couple of years off. And and there was one chapter right in the middle of the book, and it's it's somewhere in the frozen tundra of my classroom. Um, uh, And it's it's just all about how he reorganized himself. Um, The themes that he put together, tell the truth Monday, uh, stuff like that. Um, and, and I think his enthusiasm was infectious. And, you know, one of the things that I really try to do, and, and I know I was guilty of this, Tony. I know I was. Uh, there were times at my old job where this or that would be going on. I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel like we were reaching the level that we needed to reach. And instead of probably picking up my players uh, as much as I could have, I kind of went into a little bit of Eeyore mode and would come into practice upset because of the way that we played the night before or this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, one of the things I really took from Carol was you got to come with that enthusiasm every day. And every day before practice, I go around, I give every kid a high five in the gym as they're getting their shots up and doing their warm up. And, uh, just trying to bring that positive energy, having a short conversation with a lot of them along the way, you know, just a little five, 10 second check in with them, that type of thing. And, and I, and I think that has really helped me get refocused on when I step into that gym, no matter what's happened in the classroom, what no, no matter what happened in practice the night before, those type of things, you've got to bring that positive energy and enthusiasm. Um, and, and that's something I definitely took for Pete Carroll as I studied his stuff here. So, um, what else? Do you have anything else on Pete Carroll? Because I got a couple more things. No, I keep go keep rolling. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that Pete Carroll can really serve for all of us is a lot of people re- remember Pete Carroll from USC, Pete Carroll from uh, the Seattle Seahawks and winning the Super Bowl, one of only three coaches ever to. Uh, win both a national championship and a Super Bowl. Who are the other two, Tony? Early trivia question. <sighs> national championship and the Super Bowl. Did they win the Super Bowl or get to the Super Bowl? Win the Super Bowl. Win the Super Bowl. Okay, so that throws Harbaugh out of there. Yeah. Um, shoot. I threw you for a loop. Yeah, you did. You want me to help you? I wasn't you? ready for that one. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer. Ah, yeah. Cowboys. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of people remember Carroll for, for, you know, basically from 2000 onward. What a lot of people don't remember is he was fired not once, but twice from, uh, the, Jets. From, from the Jets and from the Patriots. He, pre, he was the precursor to Bill Belichick at mm-hmm. the Patriots. And he, around the age of 50, 
really had to reinvent himself as a football coach. And he took a lot of time, uh, really examined his coaching methods, and it was kind of the thing where he knew what he wanted it to look like. He just didn't know how he was going to make that happen. And I, I really think that for any coach that might be struggling, for any coach that might have you know, gotten let go from a job, and we know it happens at the high school level, uh, you know, for anybody that uh, has not reached the goals that they maybe initially set out for themselves, you know, Pete Carroll famously once said, I didn't really figure out how to be a football coach until I was about 50 years old. And and he took the time, he studied it, he, he made a plan, and once he got uh, the next opportunity, which was at USC, and it probably would have been his last opportunity at a high level, um, he took advantage of it. And, and so I, what I really admire about him is the way he bounced back from, from failure. And because we think, you know, everything's just awesome, and all of these guys had a uh, just a, a easy climb to the top that everything always worked out. Well, for Pete Carroll, it didn't work out really early in his head coaching career, and he had to figure some things out. And, and, and that's another thing that I really, really admire about him. I think he kind of became that guy, Marty, like you're talking about, where struggled at the pro level and then came down to the collegiate level and had success. You know, I think of, you know, like Fred Hoiberg, you know, did well at Iowa State, went up to the NBA, struggled, came back. And obviously you see what he's doing in your home, the state you live in with Nebraska there. Yeah. Um, Yeah, very, very similar. Kind of, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, yeah, really good stuff there. So. I really cannot. Uh, I really cannot uh, endorse his book "Win Forever" enough. I, I thought it was a terrific book. Uh, a lot of coaches' books, they kind of just recap their whole career, but he dove into his real coaching philosophy, and I think coaches will really appreciate that at all levels. So I would, I would check that out uh, if you get the opportunity to do so. A pen and a napkin university videos are just another way that a pen and a napkin can help you become a better coach. Our university video library is constantly expanding with topics ranging from interviewing for a job to full court defense to 25 universal truths about coaching. Our university videos will help you round out your skill set as a coach and help you hone your craft. Videos are $10 a piece with bundling options available. To order, you can DM me on Twitter. Send me an email at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com or order from our website, a pen and a napkin.com. Be sure to check out the a pen and a napkin video library. Who do you want to talk about next, Tony? Belichick or Saban? Let's go Belichick. Okay. Um, you know, I'm going to lead the way on Belichick and I'll let you lead on Saban because I'm, I'm a Belichick guy and you're a Saban guy. And so, uh, we can, we can roll like that. Um, you know, Belichick, uh, very, very influential on my coaching career. Uh, you know, when I became a head coach, I I felt like I, you know, <laughs> I had a lot to learn. It's, it's kind of like that old adage, you, you think you know the job until you get the job, and then you're like, oh, man, there's a lot I need to know. And, and one of the things I really dove into was Belichick and the stuff that uh, he did. Um, I really thought... I was a, a grinder as a coach, and then you read stories about Belichick. He's like, "Oh man, I gotta, I gotta work way harder." And I, and I think from afar, from fifteen hundred miles away, I, I learned a lot about just the grind of of coaching and being a head coach and what it takes to be successful there. Um, I also think that one of the biggest things that I took from Belichick was you always put the team above everything else. And sometimes that's a really, really hard thing to do. Uh, you you have personal relationships with your kids. If you've been in a community for a while, you probably have personal relationships with some of the parents that you're working with or that of the kids that you're coaching, I mean. And, you know, one of the things, kind of the quote-unquote Patriot way or one of the aspects of the Patriot way was no individual player was ever bigger than the team unless he wore number 12 um but everybody else pretty much uh you know if if you didn't toe the line if you didn't do what was needed for the good of the team if you didn't uh 
not only did you not have the the purpose, but to have multiple purposes. Uh, you know, one of Belichick's famous quotes that I always use: "The more you can do is the he means the more you can do." Um, if you're just a catch and shoot three point player, well, that's great. But how many times are you going to get to catch and shoot and just stand there if you can't guard, if you can't handle it, if you can't rebound? Uh, you know, all those things. Boy, you are. It's going to be hard to find you a lot of playing time. But if you can shoot the three and you can handle the ball, and you're a good defensive player, then you get more minutes, you know, and, and so that's something uh, that I've really taken with me, um, along with, you know, just making tough decisions when it comes to your rosters, making tough decisions, putting the team above everything else. I think one of the hardest things that we have to do as high school coaches, Tony, is when we have to play a, an underclassman ahead of an upperclassman, especially if it's an upperclassman that we really personally like. Um, we know it's best for the team. We know the underclassman is the better player. We know they're going to help us give us, or they're going to help give us the best opportunity to win ball games. Uh, but it's still, it's still really difficult. Um, you don't really, uh, most of us really don't want to do that. I, I think. Uh, the perfect situation for us is you have five senior starters. You have, uh, you know, three, four, five juniors that come off the bench. Your sophomores play on your sophomore team. Your freshmen play on your JV team. And everybody's happy, and you're winning at every level. That's the perfect formula. But, man, that rarely, if ever, happens. Um, and, and sometimes you have to make personnel decisions that you know are going to upset people on a personal level, but you have to do it for the good of the team. And so I've, I've got more on Belichick, Tony, uh, but I want to give you a, a swing at the, at the bat here uh, just to talk about you know, what I've talked about here and maybe some, some observations that you have from Belichick. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with kind of the example that you're mentioning there with, with going with the younger player, the unproven commodity, if you will, because if you go back, Drew Bledsoe was his quarterback. Drew Bledsoe was a number one overall pick. And he gets, you know, a situation where he gets hurt. They Mo go Lewis. Tom Brady. And Tom Brady is money. And then when they come back, you know, it's like, okay, do I stay with the hand or do I go back to the number one overall pick? And he's stuck with Tom Brady. And, you know, it just goes to show that whether it's the first pick of the NFL draft, and I think – Brady was sixth, seventh round pick, or it's the sixth, seventh round pick of the NFL draft. One ninety nine. You go with who gives you the best chance to win, and I think he established that as a coach. You know, like you said, we, we want it to be easy. We want it to be, hey, we've got like you said, five senior starters. We play, you know, four or five juniors. Our sophomore team is sophomores. We have a freshman team, and we don't bring any freshmen up, and we all win, and everybody's happy. But that's that's not real life. That's not athletics. And so he just showed that you have to put the team first. And it's not always easy, uh, but it is it is necessary and it is important. Mm -hmm. The other thing that stood out to me about him, and I was uh, looking through some stuff on this one, and it talked about how, like, his coaches know exactly what he wants. Mm -hmm. um, there is no gray area. There's no, hey, you know, there's some room for freedom. This is exactly what I want you to do. Mm -hmm. And so he spelled that out for him. And I think – when you're an assistant coach and you're wondering, you know, uh, what's the head coach expect here? I think it is important. The head coach is very clear in terms of what they want. They allow you to coach. They allow you to have some freedom, but they're very clear in terms of their expectations. And I think Belichick did a fantastic job with that, whether it was Nick Saban as assistant coach or uh, Josh McDaniel or Gerard Mayo, who's succeeding him. Mm -hmm. I think all of his former assistants would say, yeah, we knew exactly what the man wanted. And I think that's as a leader, as a coach, that's something that's so very, very important is to clearly let your assistants know what your expectations are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, you know, Sometimes people get frustrated with a a top down system if you're not making those decisions. But you find me a program where every coach just kind of does whatever the heck they want to do at every level, and I'm going to tell you that program is not consistently successful. I, I think there 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 has to be a vision from the top down. And here's how we're going to do things, whether you like it. Now, there is, you know, I, I think in high school situations, it's a little, it's obviously different that we can't draft players or recruit players or things like that. We can't recruit players to our system. Uh, but here's, you know, like what I tell my coaches, 
you know, here's the here's the four out of bounds plays I want you that you have to run. Now, if you want to run five or num, a, a number five and a number six that you think fit your your personnel, go ahead. But these four come first. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna start with this press in our system. You're this is this is the motion that you're gonna run. Here's a few of the drills that I want you to run. Now, once they've got those drills mastered, if you've got something else that you want to do, go ahead and do it. And and I really don't care to a to a large degree. Uh, and I shouldn't say don't care. It, it it is my program, and I'm the one at the end of the day that is ultimately. Uh, in, in charge, and so yeah, I mean, any successful business is probably going to have a a pretty big top down philosophy. You take a look at Apple with Steve Jobs, or you you take a look at Microsoft with Bill Gates or Amazon. And, and again, I'm throwing you know throwing some heavy weights around here, but you, you understand what I'm trying to say is is there's got to be that vision, and the the leader gives the vision to the program, sells the vision to the program, and then implements the vision to the program, and he needs everybody to be on board. And if you can't be on board, then you got to get off board. And and I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds you of John Gordon's energy bus a little bit. You know, if you don't have the right people on the bus, you know, you don't have to make it a confrontation, but you have to ask them to leave if they can't, you know, be on the bus and, and, and buy into the thing. And it goes back to that old quote, without, a vis- without vision, the people perish. Yeah. And so I think the leader... The, the head coach, if you will, has to share that vision with those under him, under them, so that they can see where they're headed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a couple other things here on Belichick. Is all right if I dive into it, Tony? Yeah, keep going. Um, obviously, Belichick was infamous, and I'm going to use some air quotes here, Tony, uh, four hours away. Uh, he found any advantage that he could find, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, but you know you're you're looking for advantages and you got to keep your eyes open. Um, I I I got two more things here or three more things. Uh, constant reinvention. If you take a look at his Patriots team, the the first run of of Super Bowls, the first three Super Bowls, it was defense dominated, traditional pro style offense, two wide receivers, two running backs, that type of a thing. Then he reinvented it with the double tight end stuff with Hernandez and uh, Rob Gronkowski, and and that's what they went with for three or four years. And then for the last seven or eight years of Brady's run, uh, it was basically Oregon Ducks spread offense type of a deal, uh, or, or air raid. It was kind of a hybrid between the two. And, and so it was that constant reinvention. Well, here's here's what we're going to do because this is the way we've always done it. Well, no, he he drafted and fit, and he was kind of always one step ahead in a lot of ways. Um, he, uh, I, I really, you know, obviously he's very famous for adjusting his game plans, especially on defense. You know, the the uh, Super Bowl where they beat the Buffalo Bills, and he was the defensive coordinator for the Giants. Um, where he only had like two down linemen and three linebackers and six defensive backs or whatever whatever it was. He played dime basically the entire game. Um, it threw everything for a loop. Um, you know, you know, and I think it's important we as high school coaches have what I've always called a permanent but flexible system. You know, and it kind of goes back to what I was talking about with my assistant coaches earlier. Hey, we're going to do this and this and this, and these are permanent, but this and this is a little bit flexible here. Um and so I, I think that, you know, you have to have the ability to adjust your game plans, but also be have a familiarity enough with your players that you can have that permanence in there. And then I think, you know, one of the most famous things that, that Belichick is always going to be known for, and sometimes we as coaches get caught up in this, he was always moving forward. You know, we're on to Cincinnati, the famous, the famous press conference. You know, sometimes we hold on to wins too long. A lot of times... We hold on to losses way too long, and you just got to move on to the next one. And I think Belichick, in his own way, showed us that, you know, you just got to move on to the next one. You move on, move on, move on. Uh, You can't dwell on past successes or past failures. It's just constantly moving on and moving forward, and that's the attitude you have to have as a coach. Yeah, I mean, you bring up some great examples there, the whole deflate gate thing, you know, uh, accusations of – filming practices and different things like that. And then, like you said, he went from the two tight ends with Hernandez and Gronkowski uh, to 
basically throwing it all over the yard, uh, brought in Randy Moss, you know, and different things like that, uh, took a risk on a guy and, and kind of resurrected his career yep. uh, where he was kind of a lost soul there for a while. Um, and then, like you said, he was willing to throw all kinds of different curveballs at you defensively as well, whether as a defensive coordinator um, of the Giants or whether, you know, Matt Patricia or, or whoever was his defensive coordinator doing similar things because you would see all these quarterbacks having all kinds of success and all of a sudden they come up against Belichick, the master, and they get humbled. Yeah, yep, absolutely. So anything else on Belichick, Tony? You know, I, I really like the part that you talked about, you know, on to the next one. But the one thing I think that's maybe a little bit underappreciated about Bill was his sense of humor. Yeah. And I think his guys, you know, really understood the fact that, you know, uh, it was a job, so to speak. Uh, but he did have a sense of humor. You know, I don't think people, when they had the draft during the COVID year and he had the camera on the dog and, and doing different things like that. But, you know, just he did have a sense of humor. He cared about his players. And I think all successful coaches, you have to have that to a certain extent because your guys will run through a wall for you if you if you let them know that they you know you care about them type of thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just I don't think people knew enough that side of him. Like, he opened up a press conference, his press conference the other day with, you know, we haven't seen this many people around here in a while since we signed Tebow. <laughs> I didn't hear that one. Uh, yeah. But that's funny. That's that's funny. So, uh, yeah. And and I I think that uh, you, you have to have that sense of humor. Um and yeah, I, I, you know, again, you know, the goat at the professional level. Um, like I said, I think he's going to find a, I think he's going to find a job here if he wants it in the next uh, week or so. I think he's going to head somewhere, and um, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens with him. So it'll be uh, interesting. You know, I've I've heard some rumors with the Falcons. Yep. Um, but it would not surprise me, in all honesty. And I know it's fresh today, and we have to be too careful with the knee-jerk reaction but it really would not surprise me if the dude winds up in dallas do you think it, it just wouldn't you know because the other day jerry jones has a chance to endorse mccarthy and what he's done and he's like oh well we'll, we'll see how the postseason goes and they really really want to ring i think they understand that window is is closing and they look at this guy maybe as being the one who could help build that but i mean obviously he comes in he's got instant credibility with all the, the super bowl rings that he has yeah but um the one I, thing i'll point out you take him without tom brady and his overall career record he's under 500 yeah and that's that's the you know brady wins that argument especially with the super bowl in tampa bay so yes uh, yeah got to see belichick speak one time at a coach's clinic uh, you know, always thankful to Matt Terman for putting me on the football staff for one day uh, when I was at Scott, and Belichick was speaking at the Nebraska football coaches clinic or something, something, and and uh, Matt picked up the tab, my my fifty dollar membership fee for that year or something like that. So um, it was it was pretty awesome. I was kind of geeking out. I was trying to take a picture, and this is I had like an old slide phone, like you remember the slide phones that you could have. Yeah. And I was trying to kind of like hold it up and take a picture, but I was afraid he was going to look at me and then kick me out or something like that. So, uh, but it was it was pretty awesome. It was it was a it was a once in a lifetime experience. I'll, I will always cherish it. So, um, yeah, pretty cool. So, um, let's move on to your guy, Tony. I'm going to let you lead here. You're an Alabama guy. You're a Nick Saban guy. Um, I'm, I'm going to let you roll here, buddy. The floor is yours. Tell us the things that we can take from from Nick Saban. You know, I, I really, there's so much, you know, I look at him and you're going to hear go with him as far as the greatest college football coach of all time. And in my opinion, um, you could probably cross off a lot of that and just put greatest coach of all time. I, I just really enjoy him from a lot of different vantage points. You know, number one, uh, you know, just the way that he continue to push his teams to get better throughout the year uh mm -hmm. you know the whole rat poison thing with the media and different things like that you know you go through he brings in top recruiting class after top recruiting class uh so obviously he was able to recruit really really good players in there and they understood that if they went there uh he was going to make them better and he was going to help them get their dream that they wanted to be in the nfl and the other thing i really respect about him a lot too is a lot of times you know, we are not finished products and we all make mistakes. And I think he was really, really good at the fact that, you know, these guys that we want to boot to the side and get rid of and different things like that, when they make a mistake or two or three or whatever, he was willing to give second chances to and mm -hmm. change their lives and not only their lives, 
but like their kids' lives and their grandkids' lives and different things like that, uh, just because he was willing to work with them. And I'm sure, you know, when they messed up and they had to deal with him, uh, they probably were questioning, you know, do I really want this second chance with what all he's making me do? Because he was evident, you know, obviously very much a disciplinarian. Um, the other thing, the process, you know, I think you could take that and adapt it to anything, you know, whether we're talking athletics or life or your job or your family or whatever the case may be, but the whole process thing, um, as a motivational speaker, I mean, the speeches that he would give were just gold, you know, whether he was talking about, uh, you know, callers would call in, what does it take to get to play at your level? And then just going into that, it takes what it takes. And that's the standard. And we're never going to drop the standard down. Um, and then the other thing, you know, just the way he cared about his players, you know, that to me just said a lot. You know, I think of the story, I don't know if you saw this with Greg McElroy. He was telling a story of when they were playing Duke and they were up 35 to 3. He said he threw a really bad interception, might have been the worst interception of his career. And he's makes the tackle. He's, you know, spitting the black pellets out with the turf and everything. <laughs> and he can see these shoes and he knows that they're Knicks because they're not cleats. And Nick's laughing, and he does a really nice Nick impression. You no, know, does the the whole sounds like Nick type thing, and he goes, "You know, I'm I'm three times your age, and I can throw a football ten times better than that." You know, but just at that point in time where Greg thought he was just going to get unloaded on, and he's there to show with humor that he cares, and uh, you know, just just one of those guys who I don't think they'll make another one. Um, and the the great thing about that, I'm, I'm glad that Alabama's doing. He has a office. You know, still not in the football office, so we won't be kind of that helicopter coach still, you know, doing the marinette thing. Um, but he'll still be there. You know, I, I've heard countless stories of how he helped recruit Alabama softball players and Alabama basketball players and different things like that. And, you know, just the way that he helped to the, the community of Tuscaloosa rebuild after that tornado hit, oh, yep, you know, a yep. handful of plus years ago. Um, but him and his wife, just the way that they impacted that community, those young men, that athletic department, that university. I mean, they talked about the fact that he brought in billions of dollars to that university because they, I think they more than doubled their enrollment. Most of the enrollment is from outside of the state of Alabama. Um, just incredible the, the impact the man had on the university and still at 72 years old, wanting to give back his, his noontime basketball games are legendary. Um, as far as him picking the teams and different things like that, and just the impact he had on coaches. You know, I talked about second chances with players, but you go through Mike Loxley, who's at Maryland, Lane Kiffin, who is at Ole Miss, Steve Sarkeesian, who's at Texas. And and Marty, I could go on another five minutes about guys, you know, Butch Jones, you know, I think he's at Arkansas State now, that they ran a foul and he came back and got him on the right staff and, and showed them the way, the process, how to run a program and do it the right way, and just to help those those men in, in their time of need. Yeah. Well, like Brett Bielema is another one. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, I, I feel like I'm missing a name here um, that I that was in my head, and, and then it slipped out. But, it, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I love it, Tony. I agree with you on everything that you said. Uh, I had forgotten about the tornado that hit Tuscaloosa. Um, just a tragic, tragic situation. Dozens of people were killed. That was about what, eight or nine years ago, something like that. Yeah. Um, just attention to detail. Um, I, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about Saban was he just didn't talk the talk. He walked the walk in that he was always willing to learn, to adjust and to adapt. Uh, you know, very famously, uh, he hired Lane Kiffin uh, as his offensive coordinator for, was it two or three years, Tony? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure exactly how long it, it was. was. A, it was at least two, uh, but probably... I think I, I want to say three. Okay. Uh, you want to talk about oil and water. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but but here's here's Saban in the twilight, you know, what, what turns out to be kind of the twilight of his career, his late in his career. Kiffin had, had messed up. He'd made some poor decisions, had rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, but he recognized his talent. He recognized that like Kiffin would be good for the program, that he had good ideas. Uh, and, and he, you know, again, it would be very easy for him to, 
just kind of do things the way that they'd always been done. I won't mention anybody in, in our home state, Tony, who's anyway. Uh, but, you know, he says, no, I'm going to I'm going to take this guy who I know is going to drive me nuts, but he's going to make me better. And he's going to make our team better. He's going to make our program better. Um, and, and so he was always open to learning, you know, kind of like, uh, in some ways him and Belichick have this in common. Uh, they, they started out rebuilding their, their programs, quote unquote, uh, their teams with great defenses, but then they evolved into great offenses. And, and he had what, uh, three or four Heisman trophy winners while he was at Alabama, uh, yeah. Ingram. I think, I think Mark Ingram was the first Alabama Heisman trophy winner in history. Yeah. And and he ended up with a couple of more. Um, uh, the wide receiver, um, uh, Devontae Smith. Yeah, didn't he win the Heisman? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, I don't know my 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 Heisman. Numbers. It's all right. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, but uh, you know, he he went from having this dominant defensive program to dominant offense. Uh, he understood the the landscape was changing in college football. The rules were changing, and that he was going to be a dinosaur. He was going to be left behind if he didn't if he didn't change. And so he brings in somebody like Lane Kiffin. Um, an- another thing that people often forget about Saban is he took not one, not two, but three separate football programs at the collegiate level and turned them all around. Everybody remembers what Alabama is today. But when Saban took over, it was a dumpster fire. You know that just as well as I do, Tony. Yeah. Um, when he before that, Mike Shula. <laughs> yeah, he was at LSU, and it was a dumpster fire. And he brought a national championship there. To a lesser degree, he went when he started out at Michigan State. It was not good at the very least. I think I read somewhere they hadn't had a winning season in five seasons before uh, Saban took over, and he got him to where he had back-to-back 10-win seasons or something like that before he left for LSU. So uh, the guy knows how to build programs. Uh, the process, you know, we, 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 again, if my players were listening, they'd be like, okay, coach, we get it. You know, let's, let's enjoy the process of getting better. Enjoy the process of getting better and that consistent excellence, that attention to detail. Uh, you know, I, I think they're all hallmarks of all three of these gentlemen. Yes, 100%. Yeah. So here's the any, anything else on saving, Tony? No, not really. I mean, I think I covered pretty much everything in terms of why I admire the man. I'm just going to, you know, miss that side of it. But at the same time, uh, there is some rumor out there that he may hop in and, and do some, some commentary on ESPN or one of the or Fox sports or whatever. Uh, so I'm sure he'll still be around the game. The other thing I would think would be kind of cool too. Uh, if he came, became kind of like the commissioner of college football, cause I, he's, he's a visionary and I think he sees where things are headed and yeah. could help maybe write that ship if you will. Yeah. Okay. So as we wrap up our discussion here, Tony, two of these three gentlemen have, had their successor's name. For for Saban, it was Kalen DeBoer. For uh, Belichick, it was Jared Mayo. Still don't have a coach of the Seattle Seahawks. What advice would you have? If, if Jared Mayo calls you up, Tony, and he says, Hey, Tony, Jared Mayo, head coach, New England Patriots, just succeeded Bill Belichick. What should I do? How should I handle this situation? If you're Kalen DeBoer, how do you handle it? You know, What advice do you have for anybody who's stepping into a situation where things have been highly, highly successful, uh, but you also know that you have to be your own your own coach. The, you kind of already said it, Marty. I mean, it'd be a two-word piece of advice. Be yourself. Yeah. You know, if you go in there and you try to be Nick Saban and you try to be Bill Belichick or, or Pete Carroll or whoever, you're going to be miserable uh, because you can't be them. You have to be an authentic version of yourself. And that's the thing. If you're going to fail, fail being you. Be the best version of you. Um, and I think that's the big thing, um, you know, with, with Kalen DeBoer, use, use Nick as a, as a, as a resource there. He wants to be used as a resource. He obviously is very loyal and loves the university of Alabama. Use him as a resource, but you know, you still have to be you. I think that's, that's the, the biggest piece I would give to all, all of the successors of the three highly successful coaches. Be yourself. Want to know more about a pen and a napkin and all the resources it offers? Go to com, a great resource for any coach at any level. In addition to our A Pen and a Napkin University video library options that are available to order, we have hundreds of pages of notes, from one-page handouts to book breakdowns to original coaching notes. 
We also have coaching links, a full catalog of every A Pen and a Napkin podcast, and ways to contribute to the growth of A Pen and a Napkin. Apenandanapkin.com is a coaching resource that will help you become a better coach. Well, Tony, you know just as well as I do, who is always themselves? Europe. There's no uh, nobody that has that sound. doggone right and they have never failed in over 40 years they have never failed except for after their first album and every album afterwards but anyway <laughs> details <laughs> just details it's part of the process <laughs> uh, uh, trivia you you've got a question this week it's it's your turn for trivia tony yeah what do you got for i, I hope i caught this right i was flipping through some games yesterday i think i got this right so marty what i'm looking for because we i think we had every top 10 team in men's college basketball got beat this week mm-hmm. if i'm reading things correctly um, and so kind of related to this topic what coach lost the most to number one ranked teams what coach lost the most to number one ranked teams? So he lost the most games playing against teams that were ranked number one in the country. Correct. Whew. Okay. Uh, men's coach, I assume, coaching. Uh, men's, it is a men's coach. Men's yep. college basketball. Okay. Huh. Hmm. Huh. So it had to be in a highly competitive conference. So I'm thinking probably like an ACC. Um. Jim Valvano. Jim Valvano is a great guess, but it is not accurate. Am I in the right conference? You are not in the right conference. Uh, okay. you're, all, you're, you're way too far east. Oh, okay. So I got to go out west. Go west, young man. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, no, that doesn't sound right. Uh, ah, what the heck? Jerry Tarkanian. Jerry Tarkanian, another good guess, but it is not Tark the Shark. Okay. Am I too far west? No. Oh, okay. Ah, so now, I oh, geez, I got uh, Okay, so it's got to be somebody in the Pac-10. <sighs> no, I don't think... Uh... I got one guess left. Uh, oh, I'm going to go. It's between two former Iowa Hawkeye coaches. I'm going to say Lou Dolson. You picked the wrong Iowa Hawkeye coach. Ralph Miller? Because the other one would have been Ralph Miller. Ralph Miller. I almost went with yeah, Ralph Miller. He was back in the day when Wooden was in his heyday. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure Pete Newell. I'm sure Cal was number one at various times, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good one, Tony. That's a good one. I like it. I did. I was almost. I almost said Ralph Miller. I I, I did say, got to pick between the two former Iowa Hawkeye coaches out west. So just think, if you had four guesses, you would have got it. <laughs> can, we, can we change the rules, please? <laughs> no, it just prolongs it when I get my three wrong right away. <laughs> well, speaking of which, Tony. Let's uh, let's talk a little basketball this week. I'm sorry I didn't send you the list, Tony. Uh, I forgot to do that. Uh, I scribbled this out yesterday. Let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about this crazy week. Um, Purdue losing and Tony. We were and I can't put my fingers close enough to, together to describe how close we were to driving down to Lincoln on Tuesday night because <laughs> our game got canceled on Tuesday night. And I told Michael, I was like, God, should we go down? Should we go down? They were like, Ah, it's way too cold. Uh, eight o'clock tip. We'll just watch it from home, uh, and it was really cool. Uh, you know, my son spent a lot of time with those uh, guys. Uh, you know, CJ Wilcher's a good buddy of his, and CJ had a great game against Purdue. Uh, he was so excited. He was so nervous, especially when it looked like you know they, they were going to win, but they hadn't won yet. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just it was just cool watching him watch the game and watch a lot of his friends uh, be part of something special there. But Purdue. 
Uh, Houston lost twice. Kansas lost. Kentucky lost. Uh, Tennessee, I believe, lost. Yeah. Uh, Oklahoma got beat, but it was by Kansas. Yeah. And Illinois got beat by uh, Maryland today. Yeah, it's it's just been a chaotic week. I, yeah, I think UConn is the only team in the top ten that didn't lose this week or something like that. So, uh, you know, Tony, how is this? You know, what can we what can we learn from this as as coaches as as we see this play out in the the second week of January? You know, the the things that you go back to is the fact that it's conference season now, uh-huh. and when you get into conference season. There really are no secrets. And the other thing that you f- figure out real quick in conference season as well, at least what I would say somebody like Houston is figuring out, is that once you step into these Power 5 leagues, it's really good ball. And you've got to be ready to go every night. There are no nights off. And so uh, when you're not ready to go, you get beaten places like Ames, Iowa. Not that, that the Cyclones are bad because they're – I would Hilton think Magic, probably baby. be rated – Yeah, Hilton Magic is a real thing. I think they have the third most wins – against top 10 teams in the last, I can't remember what the stat was, however many years. Um, but yeah, it's a real thing, you know, whether it's men or women's, because the women's team obviously knocked off Baylor. I was just going to uh, say, big, big shout out to Coach Fenley and, and crew down at Ames as well. Yeah, And it might be his best coaching job ever, Marty. Yeah. That, that's been one of the topics around here for the past few days is, is this his best job? And the number of years that he's been at Iowa State, and if the season were ended today, end today I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that you, you bring up great things, Tony. You know, um, we're into the, the, the stretch of the season. Uh, we've, we've talked about it with our team. That, like you said, there are no secrets. Everybody's got film on us now. Everybody's, you know, good coaches are watching film and they're coming up with, with ideas and concepts and ways to, to come after us. Uh, they're, they're looking for chinks in our armor. And, and, and so it is part of the grind. You, you are going to lose. Um, I've only ever been part of one undefeated season. Uh, been a part of great, great teams. I've been really lucky, but only ever had one undefeated season. You, uh, you know, the, the acronym, uh, loss, L-O-S-S, learning opportunity, stay strong. And, and I think what you have to do the vast majority of the time, when you lose a game, you have to learn from it. Uh, don't, you know, it's going to happen. You're going to, uh, you're going to not shoot the ball well uh, on multiple nights during the season. It's just it's just the way this stupid game works, and so you've got to be teaching. You've got to be focusing on making your team the best that you can be for the last month of the season. And and we're still not there yet. So you still got to keep learning. And you can't, you know, what's the proper reaction? You never want to overreact to a loss. You never want to underreact to a loss. You have to have the proper reaction. But to me, Tony, you start with the the, the proper reaction is being ready to learn from every night out that you step out onto the floor. And I think that's the way you have to take it, especially when it's difficult and the most difficult time to have that attitude is when you do lose a game. Yes. You know, we didn't play particularly well uh, Thursday night. We got our, our, it was the only game we got in. And, you know, I sit here and think about it, and there's there's a variety of things, but a big part of it is, like you said, there's film out there. Uh, this team threw a curveball at us. They played us pretty much entirely zone. Uh, we hadn't seen a 2-3 zone the entire season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a definite curveball at us, and it's one of those things where, you know, we would – think we were going to play then we wouldn't play and we had short practices and different things like that and so it was almost like the first week of the season all over again Mm -hmm. yeah and and everybody's in that same boat we're all in the same boat we got to kind of all figure it out on the fly um right now especially in our situation here in the midwest where um you know, I, I'm I'm worried about Darth Vader coming out here looking for Luke Skywalker on Ice Planet Hoth right now. Uh, so uh, yeah, just you just got to keep learning, um, and and you got to keep moving it forward. So, coaches, you know just as well as I do that we're always looking for new and different ways to motivate our players and programs. But sometimes it's hard to find that perfect source that we're looking for. Over the past 25 years, I've collected hundreds of handouts to help motivate my players and programs, and now I'd like to share some of my favorites with you. The A Pen and a Napkin 101 Best Handouts Booklet is now available to you for only $15. In this booklet, you'll find motivational material for all types of situations and individuals to help you communicate your values to your players and program. For ordering information, you can either DM me on Twitter or email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com for details. Let's uh, let's talk a little women's hoops here, Tony. 
Um, UConn just lost officially this past week uh, their fourth player to the season. Just, uh, you know, uh, Aubrey Griffin tore ACL, ironically enough, here in Omaha against Creighton uh, a couple weeks ago. AZ Fudd, uh, Ayana Patterson, uh, Janet L. Alfie, uh, all season-ending injuries. Um, but Gino's got his team back up close to the top 10, if not inside the top 10. I can't remember for sure. Uh, you know, just, you know, how do you continue to coach your team where it just feels like you can't catch a break, Tony? That one's a tough one uh, because it seems like it's Murphy's Law. And, uh, you know, I read a book, Twin Thieves. I don't know if you've ever read that one. But one of the pieces of advice the old wise coach in that book gives is attack Murphy. Um, you know, and just the fact that you just keep you keep plugging away. Um, you keep battling each and every time out there. And you take who you have. And one of the phrases that we use with our team is the most dangerous animal is a wounded animal. And obviously their, their team has been wounded. One of their other top players, I think, is Caroline Descharm. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of her last name. But she's out for, you know, indefinitely as well. And she's a five-star former starter for him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he just keeps finding a way. He's, he's a magician. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it would be tough. You just have to keep plugging away with what you have. Uh, keep believing them. And like we talked about with Pete Carroll earlier, just stay optimistic all the time with them um, okay. and, and never have a bad day. Yeah, and and next man up, as the saying goes. Now, sometimes in certain situations, we I had a season one year where I had a returning All-Stater and probably the best athlete in the entire state of Nebraska. Uh, she tears her ACL at October 1st, and as much as you'd like to say, next next woman up in that scenario. Yeah. Uh, there's no way we were going to replace what she was capable of doing as an individual. Uh, so... Uh, you know, it was it was a tough year. It was a tough year. Um, you know, we got some things sorted out by the end of the year, but it was a tough climb to get there. And so, uh, yeah, and and injuries are part of the game, unfortunately. And so, you just got to keep you just got to keep grinding away. So, um, let's. Uh, anything else in the college game that you wanted to throw out there, Tony? Those are my kind of couple big topics for the college game. You know, it was, it was just looking back at the women's game, you know, today there were some upsets. Auburn knocked off LSU. Yep. Uh, and then you turn around and USC beats UCLA. And so I think you'll see Iowa up to number two. Uh, and then Iowa yesterday uh, got Indiana, uh, another another highly ranked team, by almost 30 points in their home floor yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so it was just interesting to see a little bit more parity at the collegiate level because I know you know last week you talked about Tennessee and they're they're inching closer. I still think they're on the outside of the bubble looking in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is it is different teams now, and you see more parity in the game. And you see when Caitlin Clark, wherever she happens to be, whether that's in Iowa City or on the road, um, selling out arenas and things like that. And so that that, that part of it's cool. You know, I was I was talking with my wife, uh, and I said, you know, you know what's awesome about this last night, um, watching Iowa play Indiana, is you can you ever think of a time where a women's college basketball game was on prime time Saturday night on a major network, and Gus Johnson doing play by play, correct. Yeah. You know, that that's the, the growth of the women's game. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, the, there is a presence there. <laughs> there. There is there is an individual who has driven a lot of that. Uh, mm-hmm. But but no, that's what you have to have. I mean, Babe Ruth made baseball in the 20s. You know, you talk about the greatness of the game. Well, it was Babe Ruth that drove it. You know, it was... Uh, you know, it was it was Chamberlain and Russell that drove the NBA in the '60s. It was Magic and Bird that drove the NBA in the '80s. It's it takes those individual players in team sports to to have the team sport uh, really take off, and and so I, I think that you know just the uh, just the, the 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 way that the game has grown in the last five years. And you know, Tony, you and I, um, you you've never coached guys, have you? Or what? No, you're coaching guys right now. I'm an idiot. Scratch that. <laughs> Scratch that. My first job, I actually coached guys too. I was a JV coach at back in the day. I think it's Waterloo Christian now, but it was Walnut Ridge back when I was there. Gotcha. So, I mean, we uh, we've spent most of our coaching career coaching women was, was going mm-hmm. to be my my statement uh, until I butchered it and screwed it completely up here. So, uh, God, the, what editing's for? The, the the producer's got to fire this guy. He's a yeah, you know, so. <laughs> but uh, to to see that and to play out on a Saturday night. 
uh, it was just really awesome. It was just really, really cool to see. And, and she put on a show and Molly Davis put on a show, boy, she played mm-hmm. tremendously well. And, and, and when you hit 13 or 14 threes, that also helps as well. So, not uh, bad. yeah, yeah, not bad, not bad. So, uh, a couple NBA notes here, Tony, uh, your thoughts on Jerry Krause getting booed as he was inducted into the ring of honor of the Chicago Bulls. You know, I understand a little bit because obviously the last dance did not paint him in the best light. Yeah. The thing that's heartbreaking, his widow was there and she got emotional and was in tears. And thank God for Ron Harper being there to comfort her. Um, But, you know, people have to be better than that. I mean, if you go back and take a look at what what he did as the architect of the Bulls, don't get me wrong. Like we were talking about earlier, Brady, in my opinion, made Belichick. Jordan made the Bulls. Yep. But at the same time, you have to have the guy that gets Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and Dennis Rodman and, and so on and so forth, Ron Harper, whatever. But but my point being, you know, he deserves some credit. And you know, it was to me, it was it was a very classless move on the the Chicago Bulls fans' part. I I agree, Tony. Um, I'm reading a book right now, and I can't remember the title of it. But it's basically this this guy hypothesizes that the eighty seven eighty eight season was the greatest season in NBA history because the the Lakers were at the peak of their powers the the Celtics were still really good but not as dominant uh the Pistons were just ready to take over from the Celtics and uh and then the Bulls were just in the infancy of trying to creep up on the Pistons you know um he said the star power the talent in the league all of these different things you know that's his hypothesis is that was a great season and and i'm only about halfway through it so uh, i don't know what's in the other half of the book but he but one of the the sections that i read about uh kraus and most of this i know of course uh yeah he is the guy that he didn't draft michael jordan you know yeah you get that okay he inherited michael jordan but he did like you said every other piece uh pippen Grant in the same draft, uh, trading Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright, which was a key, key move. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it's easy to point out the stars, Tony. It's at the professional level, it's finding those complementary pieces. Uh, having, you know, John Paxson, BJ Armstrong, and Steve Kerr uh, were the complementary players alongside Michael Jordan, along with Ron Harper. Uh, find, you know, bringing in Tony Coot. Coach, and you know that was a bumpy ride. Pippen and, and Jordan didn't like it because of all the attention that that Kraus gave him. But you know, it, it was you know he he deserve he. It's just like anything else in life, Tony. When when we're when we're getting blamed for something, it's, it's often unfair. And when we're getting too we're we're getting too much credit, that's just what it usually is. It's probably too much credit than we deserve. And 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 I think it was a really classist thing that the the Bulls fans did to uh, to Jerry Krause the other night. I, I just you know like you said, got to be better. Got to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, last thing I had, Tony John ja Morant out for the year. Um, it's a sad, uh, you know, I don't know if this is maybe a, a blessing in disguise for him, uh, because now it gives him an opportunity to fully, you know, get him figured out, uh, instead of rushing back out onto the court. He, he made the Grizzlies better, uh, but obviously their, uh, their, their chances of making the playoffs are slim and none now. Uh, before he was injured, they were just slim. They would have had to play extremely, extremely well. Uh, but with his off-the-court uh, issues and, and some of the things that he's dealt with, uh, could this be a little bit of a blessing in disguise for him for the long-term success of his career? Potentially, and I hope he looks at it that way. I mean, a lot of times, you know, when, when life hands us really bad setbacks, injuries, you know, whatever the case may be, how you approach it is so very, very key. And I think they brought in a couple vets to help him, Marcus Smart, uh, you know, Derek Rose. And this will be the time when I think those guys need to really lean in uh, with Jaw mm-hmm. and, and make sure, because this could be a, a tough time when he doesn't have ball, doesn't have to behave, so to speak, you know, hey, I don't have the microscope on me, you know. And, and, and that's the know, other side of fall it. back into that stuff that he had previously. Mm-hmm. No, and that's the other side of it. What, what's the saying? Idle hands are the devil's. Yep. Uh, I, you know, fool me once, shame on 
you fool me twice. Just don't try to fool me. I'm pulling out my best George W. Bushes here. So, but, uh, strategery. Uh, <laughs> Will Farrell was so good as <laughs> he was. You know, uh, did you ever see the one where Dana Carvey was on there with him? Fathers, you know, and, and Dana's up there. Not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent <laughs> at this juncture. Now, come on here, Georgie boy. You gotta get this figured out. You know, you gotta got a lot of responsibility. It's scary, scary. <laughs> <laughs> I might have seen that one. Now that you know how you describe it. <laughs> I think we've went a couple minutes too long at this point. So. <laughs> Uh, anything else on the Three Kings, buddy? Uh, it's just hard. You know, when you get to this age and you lose, you know, three guys like this. But at the same time, the one thing that I thought was really good that I saw out there on Twitter, it took them less than two days to replace Nick Saban as coach of Alabama. Uh, Kalen DeBoer came in there. And the point was that we're all replaceable. And as coaches, yeah. to make sure uh, that we're where we aren't replaceable at as a husband, as a father, you know, uh, son, whatever the case may be, and to make sure that that priority lies with them because we're all replaceable, but make sure in the places that we really aren't replaceable, dad, you know, husband, son, whatever, that we're, we're present where our feet are. With yeah, them. yeah. I, I read something somewhere. Uh, when, you, when you leave a job, uh, the first question uh, that your players will ask you is, you know, are, are, you, are you okay? And the second question I ask is, do they know who's replacing you? You know, Um, and and so, yeah, we and if we do our job correctly, we're all replaceable. We're we're all replaceable with with everything that we do. So uh, great talk this week, buddy. Good luck. We're we're probably with this snowmageddon coming in here, this ice planet Hoth. Uh, we're, we're going to we're going to have the NBA schedule for the next couple of weeks, probably. So uh, wish you luck, man. I was telling my guys the other day, I think we practiced yesterday, and we had 13 days. Our last game, I'm sure we'll go past this with, with it, but it was February 13. Like, we played, you know, eight games. So we're going to play 13 games in roughly 30 days, 31 days. Yeah. Uh, so that's a game every every two days, roughly. So be ready for the NBA schedule, and we'll do the best we can with what we have. It's We're not the only team in that situation. And, yep. You know, and it's a situation where we get to, we don't have to. And just yep. looking at it as a blessing, that is a burden. Well, you're playing the NBA schedule, Tony, and if it were my way, I think you should get paid like an NBA coach as well. So, Thank you, uh, sir. Eric Spolster money, I, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Eric Spolster money so you can go buy a Hubie Brown outfit. Yes, the Hubie. <laughs> there you go. So, Episode 71 of the coaching staff, Three Kings, Saban, Carroll, and Belichick. Hope you folks have enjoyed it again. Uh, Tony and I cannot endorse enough. You know, Don't just take a look at at uh, Phil Jackson and Steve Kerr and and uh, Izzo and Krzyzewski. Yeah. You know, you got to take a look at, at other sports, at other coaches, uh, businesses. You know, I've read stuff on Steve Jobs, uh, the three folks we've talked about here, uh, Joe Madden and 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 uh, Joe Torrey. And uh, I just I just got, you know, you, so, so you got you, you got to step out of your comfort zone and you got to take a look at at folks outside of things. Uh uh, Walter Isaac's uh, biography on Steve Jobs. Absolutely awesome. It's a long read. It's five, 600 pages. Absolutely awesome. Take a look at it. Uh, so take a look at people outside of your area and, and take the lessons that they have to learn because there are lessons there to be learned. So coaches, hope you enjoyed this. You know how to get a hold of Tony and I. Uh, let us know if you've got any questions, all right? Coaches, as always, let's be sure to hone our craft one day 